Well, good morning. Welcome back. I hope that you guys got some sleep. Um, we are going to continue our time in Philippians 2, the second half of the chapter this morning. But before we like jump in and start looking at it, I just am wondering if you've ever had a bad boss. <laughs> right? <laughs> Lots of chuckles out there. So yes, you've had experiences with bad bosses. Um, I'm thinking in this case of someone that you like have to be on the lookout for because if you're caught underperforming, they'll make sure that you know it, right? The kind that you know is out for their own good. Like clearly they've got their eyes on that promotion and you're going to be the one who helps them get it. The kind that is out for their own good, even at the expense of their employees, like quite the opposite of what we looked at last night. Um, And so you go to work each day not really wanting to be there, but also feeling like you had better live up to expectations because the repercussions of not doing so would be swift and severe. So these are the kinds of bosses that might be able to generate high output outcome in the short run, right? But that's not sustainable because if your employees are unhappy and living in fear, that's not a good long-term plan. Either people will quit or they'll rebel because no one wants to live and work in fear day in and day day out. If they, don't ha- if, they, if they don't have to, why would you want to do that? On the other hand, have you ever had a really amazing boss? Someone who every day inspires you to come to work and just want to do your best because you really love this person, because they take an interest in you and they want you to excel, and so somehow you find yourself excelling. These are the kind of people who make their employees want to come to work each day and want to do their best, and their employees might feel a sense of fear in disappointing their boss, but it's not because they're afraid of their boss, but because they really like them. They want to do their best. It's a positive fear of not wanting to let down somebody that they have so much respect for. Those are the kinds of people that we want to work for, right? We, we all, wouldn't it be wonderful if we all had the experience of having such great bosses? Well, our passage this morning instructs us to excel at our work as Christians. Basically, when we read these verses, just to give you like a heads up, it kind of feels to me like Paul is just saying like, if you guys could just be perfect, then we'd all be fine. So, okay. But I think his motivation in telling us to do this is he's saying, you guys have the very best boss in the whole world. So work like you do. There's a tension in these verses. And so I'm going to read them and see if you can kind of pick up on this tension here. So we're going to look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So do you feel the tension in these verses, maybe, of this all making sense and being inspirational, right? Like, sure, it makes sense that we would want to live like this when we've received all that we have. Looking back up at the first half of the chapter that we looked at, all the things that Jesus did for us, when you read that list and then you go right down to the things that you can do in response, it all makes sense. It's very inspirational. But then do you feel also like this sense that, wow, that's really big what Paul just asked me to do. It's like so intimidating that maybe I just won't even try. Maybe I'll just keep reading so that I don't have to really take in all that that's going to mean for me. Okay, so first of all, when we come to this section, I want us to keep in mind very clearly, because any time that we come to a passage that tells us the things that we need to do, we need to keep in mind that this is not a standalone passage of things that are telling us to work really hard, especially when we're going to come down here and see this verse that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is not a standalone section. We need to consider these verses in light of the whole of Scripture. We can't be perfect. Paul knows this. He's telling us to be perfect, but he knows we can't do it. Jesus knows this. That's why he died for our sins, right? Why would he do that if he didn't already know that we were going to fail, that we had failed, that we are, and we will continue? But at the same time, we have been forgiven. He did die for our sins. We have been bought with this price. We've been justified. We've been adopted into God's family. This gathering of women, when we all get together, should look different than a gathering of non-Christian women because our lives should be being transformed by this gospel that we have. We have a common purpose. We have a common identity. No matter how different we are, we have the greatest thing ever in common that holds us together. We should be living lives of humility, in love, and preference for one another, as we saw last night. Corporately, together, we have a common purpose. We have work to do together. And according to these verses, there's three parts to that work. So we're going to look at the fact that these verses tell us that we need to keep up the good work of the Christian life. That's, we see that in verses 12 through 13. Keep up the good work. And then in verses 14 through 15, be a light. Be a light. And then lastly, in verses 16 through 18, hold fast. Hold fast. So first, looking at the first two verses, keep up the good work. Let me read those verses one more time. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, But much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if I was going to take these verses too literally, I think I would stop reading right there because it says, as you've always obeyed. Well, count me out. This must be for somebody else, right? But the great thing is, is that we're reading these, like we said, in light of everything else. So in light of everything we've already read up to this point, we are to keep, keep on obeying. 
And even if all that looks like is, I believe the gospel, that's enough obeying. Like, we're on the right track. We are in this. In light of the fact that Jesus gave us the very best example of humility, we can keep moving towards that. In light of the fact that Jesus is worthy of our worship, our adoration, our honor, our confession, as we saw at the end of our passage last night. The Philippian church had demonstrated their obedience, their love for the gospel, their desire to follow Jesus, and to do what is right while Paul was with them. So he knew he had seen their obedience. Now he's gone, and he's writing to them from prison. And you can imagine that they might be feeling discouraged right now. He's urging them to keep on keeping on, to not grow weary, to not get discouraged that he's in prison for the gospel, and, and to even believe that the same outcome could be possible for them. But that's not what they should focus on, what is, what's to come, what kind of suffering they might face. Rather, they should be looking back to what they've already been granted and looking forward to what they will obtain, all while looking at where their feet are stepping. Like, that's the call that we have, to look back on what we've already been delivered to, look forward to where our hope is, and watch where we're going all the way. The Philippian church is to press on in obedience, to keep doing what God's word tells them to do. And this is the same message for us today. We aren't meant to do any of this alone We need each other. We need to spur one another on to love and good deeds, as Scripture says. So we obey together. Sometimes we're pulling someone along with us as we're feeling strong, right? Who is it that we can pull along with us who is feeling discouraged? We encourage one another. We speak truth to one another. We learn from one another. There's there's a degree that of freedom that we find in this corporate mentality, even though sometimes it's scary to us to engage in it. But there's a freedom that comes from knowing that this is not me alone. This is not all about me. But there's also a deep responsibility that comes from being part of the whole. I am not responsible simply for my own obedience, but for everyone else's too. So we come to this scripture here, and we see that Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, what does that mean? Because I believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Foundational to my understanding of the gospel is that I cannot earn my own salvation, right? So what do we do when we come to a verse like this? How are we supposed to understand it? My works are as filthy rags. They will always come up short. So is Paul contradicting himself? Because he has said all those things before, and now he says this. What's going on here? Does that mean, does what he's writing here mean that, yes, we were saved by grace through faith, but once we're saved, we'd better get our act together because it's works that matter after salvation? Because that's what I used to believe, but I don't think that's what Scripture's saying. I think he's referring back 
to Philippians 1.27, and we looked at it last night, but this is sort of the, 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 mess, the overall message that he's preaching here to the Philippian church, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You've been justified. You don't have to do anything in that, even after you've been justified. There's nothing that you have to do. You're not going to lose your salvation if you don't do something. You're not going to earn your salvation anymore if you do do something. It's already been done. But is it, like, what's happening in you if it doesn't change you at all, ever? Paul means here when he says, let your life be worthy of the gospel, what we often refer to as being saved. If we're in Christ, we've already been saved from sin and judgment. We've already been brought into God's kingdom. In response, we should live like we've been saved. We don't earn our salvation in any way. We don't work for righteousness. We live, we work, out of the righteousness that we've already received. We should live like saved people not to earn our salvation, not to keep our salvation, but to be true to our identity. What happens if you, you know, if you don't live true to who you are? That's like a message that we hear in the world all the time. But that's what we need to call ourselves to as Christians, to live true to who we really are. Sometimes I think we can struggle with assurance that we're saved. Is that just me or is that other people too, right? Am I really saved? What better way to assure yourself that you really belong to Jesus than to do what he says? To live like you belong to him. To live in peace with him. To know just a little bit that you reflect his character in your life. We're not doing that to earn our salvation, but to demonstrate that we belong in his kingdom, that we are part of his family. So I think this is why Paul says, with fear and trembling. I think it's easy to get so comfortable with God's love and the safety and the security that we find in that love, and that's true. We should. We should just rest in that so much. But we also have to hold this intention uh, with the fact that there's truth in the fact that he is to be feared, Right? We don't want to become so comfortable with his love that we become uncomfortable with the fact that he is a righteous, holy God. He is holy. He demands holiness. This should inspire a true, reverent fear in us. It should make us want to live holy lives. Not in a bad sense of fear, but in a good sense of fear. We shouldn't obey him out of obligation. But honestly, the fact is, we should, we, if we never want to obey him, if we never want to listen to him, if we never want to live for him in any way, we might need to do an honest check of our faith. Because if we love Jesus and we belong to him, our lives should give some evidence through changed desires and priorities. And I'm not talking about anything that, like, nowhere near perfection, but little glimpses here and there, right? You know what they are. Just when you think, you look back and you think, well, I would, have, I would have not said that before. You know, I would have lost my temper there. I would have re responded different. Look at what God's doing in my life. These aren't things that we have to, like, force to happen. They're things that when we live with Jesus, they naturally happen out of our lives. 
So together, as a church, we make an effort to align our lives to the gospel, to be more and more transformed and conformed to the image of God. And I think too often we misunderstand the work that we are called to do. I think it's easy for us to make our own list of what this is supposed to look like, to create to-do lists of the holy Christian life, right? I think that I am very much tempted to figure out for myself what it means to work out my salvation. So maybe it's showing up on Sunday morning or uh, reading my Bible for 20 minutes each day or keeping a prayer journal or being part of a small group. Maybe it's not using certain words or wearing certain clothes or maybe is serving in the nursery or is doing a certain type of evangelism. Those are all like really good things. There's nothing wrong with anything on that list, right? Take daily Bible reading. It's not just a good thing to read the word, but it's a necessary thing, right? But what does the Bible say about how often we should read the Bible and how long? What does the Bible say about the best method of study? Nothing, right? It does say that we should long for it, that we should delight in it. So when we make lists of actions and we decide for ourselves what that should look like, I think we miss out. We miss out on the joy of the Lord that's found just being in his presence, in loving him and being loved by him, in looking back with surprise at the way he changed our hearts when we didn't even realize it was happening, at the way that we did that thing that we thought we would never be able to do because of the empowerment of the Spirit in our lives. It's God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. For each of us, he has work for us to do. And yeah, he tells us what it is, and we should follow through with it. So you see this tension that we have? Because there, is, there are things that we need to will ourselves to do, but we do it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we don't make our own lists. We let the Holy Spirit direct us. And it takes a lot of wisdom. And we get it right sometimes, and we get it wrong sometimes. But we, we just keep moving forward. For each of us, he has work for us to do. It requires God working in us and through us, but it also requires our participation. I want to work hard for my Savior, don't you? I've had times when I've worked out of obligation. I've had other times where I haven't really worked much at all because I was kind of ambivalent about the whole thing. But I want to work out this salvation that has been freely given to me because I love Jesus. And I want to follow him with all my heart, knowing that it's him who is doing this in me and through me for his good pleasure. I mean, isn't it the most amazing thing that our lives, that my small life can bring pleasure to God? This is the work that he can and will do in us and through us if we'll just kind of get out of the way and let him, and yet keep walking forward in step with him. Okay, so that's the first thing that Paul writes to the Philippian church and to us. The next thing he talks about is be a light, and we see this in verses 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
It matters how we live, not just because it's obedience to God, not just because it brings peace and joy. It brings more than just this reassurance that we do belong to Christ. It's how we display God's truth to the world around us. Living above reproach isn't necessary for our salvation, right? We've already been saved in spite of the fact that we weren't at all living above reproach. We've already been justified by Christ. But living above reproach is necessary if we're aiming to love those around us who are not yet saved. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many times do we as Christians get sidelined in what we're trying to do because of grumbling or complaining in the church. It's just like this little insidious thing that can kind of sneak in. <coughs> the enemy often doesn't even have to come, out at, come at us with outside opposition. You know, we read through Paul's letters and we see like, you're going to suffer for the gospel. And, and I think sometimes we think like, we're not really suffering. But how many times is that because the enemy doesn't have to bring outside opposition because we're just doing it for him? We are happy to simply bend to his advances within our own body when he tries to stir up anger, competition, bitterness, resentment, criticism. What happens when members of a church start bickering? We stop hearing the word clearly. What happens when we start criticizing our leadership? We stop loving one another. We stop being concerned that the watching world see the light of Christ. And then when people look in on us, they see ugliness rather than love. They see something that makes them want to steer away. Satan loves division and upset, bickering and complaining because it keeps God's church from bringing God's light into the world. Church infighting had a really big role uh, in, a big impact in my life. Not a big role, that makes it sound like it, but a big impact because towards the, near, towards the end of high school, I had this youth pastor that I really loved. I thought he was doing such a great job, but some of the parents decided that he wasn't. And so there was this really ugly thing that, that can happen in churches, right, where they, they basically stage a coup. And so we had this meeting once to talk about the youth pastor, and all these people that I had grown up with, this is the church I grew up in, and lovely people, really, like, but they, this just, this spirit of criticism got a hold of them for a while, and um, I listened to them speak these words that caused me to lose respect for them through what they were saying. There was bickering, and arguing, and disputing, and grumbling, and it turned me off of church for a long time, actually. I couldn't understand why God's people would act like that towards each other. Now, partly, this was just like my lack of understanding of Scripture at that point, too. But still, it was so influential for me that I struggled for years with going to church because I didn't want to be hurt by that kind of thing again. It no longer felt like a safe or a good place to be. And for a while, I even completely walked away from God because it just didn't seem like he was that good or that powerful if his people would act that way. His word didn't seem to be having very much impact on the people who were claiming to hold it up high. The world is watching. That's the kind of power that the church has over people's lives, right? 
Probably for most of us, if we've been in church long, we could tell a similar story, sadly. We have stories to tell about sinful behavior and its damaging effects to the witness of the church. And it could be just as simple as two church members that are out for dinner that grumble and complain about something petty at church and the wrong person overhears them, you know? What kind of witness do we give when we're out and about? What do we talk about in our church? Do you think about who might be hearing you? Okay, so does this mean then that good Christians don't ever disagree or argue? Like that does not have a place in our church. Well, no. I mean, we are a bunch of sinners who gather together, saved by grace, but arguing and disagreement happens sometimes. It's not always wrong. In fact, sometimes it's necessary. There are things that this, this scripture tells us we should disagree on. So it's not wrong that we disagree. It's not even wrong that we would argue about something. As long as we're struggling with sin, which we will be as long as we live here on earth, we will have discord in some ways. It's how we deal with that that either serves as a light or a stumbling block. When two sisters in Christ are able to disagree in a loving, considerate way, are able to either work out their differences or just agree to love, and love each other in spite of them, that is a beautiful thing. What a great demonstration of the love of Christ. Or when we complain or bicker, but we are quick to respond to that conviction of the Holy Spirit, what a beautiful thing. That causes people to take notice when we quickly reorient ourselves to the way of Christ. I don't know about you, but I often look at complaining as a pretty innocent action. I honestly, I complain a lot. After all, sometimes we just need to vent, right? I have three kids. There's a lot to vent about. But as innocent as I want to think that it is, I don't think it really is. Think back to the Exodus. And remember, God called Moses. Moses delivered the people through the Red Sea. Like, it was amazing, God's deliverance. And then the people journey for a couple days without water. And what do they start doing? They start grumbling. They start complaining. God, why did you deliver us if you were just not going to give us any water and we were going to die out here? That was grumbling and complaining, right? And they had a good reason to do it. They're in the desert without any water. But what did God see that as? Lack of trust in his provision. Unbelief. The Israelites were marked by their complaining and by their mistrust in God. Complaining (coughs) and grumbling is far more serious than we give it credit for. (coughs) This is a message that I need to hear over and over and over because it's just really so easy to start finding fault or to start worrying or all the ways. When these things come, it's not that I just need to push them away and pretend like they're not there, but I need to deal with them. I need to think, why am I grumbling? Why am I feeling anxious about this? Because really, it's evidence that I don't quite believe in God's good provision in my life. Because these feelings really indicate that we aren't completely trusting God's goodness, 
God's gracious provision. How do we act as a light for those living in darkness? By demonstrating that trust in God is good, that it's not misplaced, that God is sufficient, that he loves and cares for us, that he's always good enough for everything. This is what our friends who don't have him need to know. They need to be drawn to his perfect provision. And that starts with recognizing that Jesus died to save them for their sins, right? We need to stop getting in the way of this message with our not-so-innocent grumbling and complaining. Okay, after that really convicting message, I don't know about for you, but for me, really convicting message, let's look at the third point in verses 16 through 18, that we hold fast. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the third way that Paul tells the Philippian church, and then us by extension, to live together with one purpose is to hold fast to the word of life. We are to persevere, to not give up, to cling to God's word. Because in it, we have life. In it, others find life. We are all going to have times in this life where we grow weary. When we feel like maybe giving up or just growing complacent. Maybe it's because of suffering or trials like health problems or loss of job or relationship issues, rebellious children, death of someone that we love, financial strain. I mean, the list could go on. This world has real suffering, real pain that we walk through. There are so many things that come at us that just wear us down in life. They can cause us to question if God is really good, if he's really looking out for us, if he's really for us. Maybe even to question whether he's really there at all. How do we combat that kind of thinking, these kinds of doubts, by holding fast to the word of life? Even when we're not sure if it's true or if it's working, we need to hear it. We need to remind ourselves of it. But you know what? We can't do it alone. We need other people who come and help us to persevere, help us to hold fast, who keep repeating the same things maybe over and over until we're ready to hear them. So we need to sit under good teaching Even when we don't feel like it, we need to show up here and hear the good teaching. We need to invite others into our lives who will speak truth to us. We need to know where to go to, who's going to tell us what we need to hear, you know? Who's going to take us to the Word of God? We also grow weary sometimes because of the draw of the world, right? Sin looks really appealing sometimes because it is full of all sorts of promises, false promises, but it doesn't always feel like they're false. Sometimes it doesn't feel like following Jesus is worth it. It feels like that way over there would just be a lot easier. It can feel like following Jesus can limit our fun, make us stand out, especially as the world around us is telling us constantly that the message of the Bible is narrow-minded and even hateful. If we are not in the word, guarding our minds with the true promises of the Bible, we can fall prey to that kind of thinking. We need to pay attention 
to the stories of those around us who tell us that they've tried those false promises of sin and they fall short. We need to listen to the truth of God that exposes sin for what it is. The words of Scripture are what shine light on the darkness, that reveal the ugly truth of, of the darkness. Sin will only enslave us. It brings nothing good, no matter what it promises. It's full only of broken promises every single time. So hold fast to the word of life. Keep following Jesus. We hold fast, knowing that we, like Paul, do not run or labor in vain. We so often don't reap all the benefits of life with Jesus in the here and now, do we? We have to be patient. We have to wait for it. Paul certainly didn't. What did he reap? Prison. And then eventually death, right? But he was determined to persevere, to keep running and laboring. We need to be too. Back many years ago, when I was very young, I decided to train for a marathon. And I was not a runner at the time at all. I was not even fit at the time, but I trained faithfully, really hard. I signed up, and I showed up. I did all the training, even when my friends dropped out. So the day of the marathon, it was finally there, and I got my number, and I didn't know anything about what I was doing, and I started out too hard because it was so fun. There were crowds everywhere. There were bands. It was so cool, and I knew I was ready to go. And about halfway in, I wanted to quit. There was like this long stretch of road and a bridge ahead, and you could see the bridge in the distance, but it took so long to get there. When I got to the bridge, I just thought like, there's just no way that I can do this. I don't know what I was thinking. But on the bridge, at the very end of the bridge was my family, and they were waiting with signs, and um, it was just the boost that I needed. It got me through to keep going. So I kept going, and I kept going, and I got to, like, three miles to go, and it started really getting rough, like, bad. One mile, one mile to go, and I seriously, like, couldn't even put one foot in front of the other. And I was, like, in tears, because what am I going to do? But I knew that there were people waiting for me at the finish line, and I kept thinking, like, I've got to get there, because they, I don't want to tell them I didn't make it. And yet this battle raging in my mind of like, I seriously can't put one foot in front of the other. And then out of nowhere, my dad showed up and he ran next to me all the way up until the finish shoot. And he just said, keep going, keep going, keep going. And without him, I would have dropped out of that race. I'm certain of it. But because the right person came at the right time and said the right things and was just there for me, I finished. You guys, that's what the Christian life is, too. We're not supposed to do this all by ourselves. We need people to come alongside us when it's too hard, when we can't believe anymore. We need somebody who's going to believe for us. This is something that we do together. I think that's what Paul had in mind in these verses when he talks about not running or laboring in vain. This race, this Christian life, is no joke, is it? It's like a marathon. At times, it's amazing. We have all the energy. We have all the motivation. The crowds are cheering for us. But there are also times when we are spent. We've given everything, or we've had everything taken from us. But we need to not give up. We have to find the strength 
from others, find the strength in God's word, allow him to carry us through, and he uses the people around us to do that. We have to have the assurance that Jesus is with us every step, and he won't give up on us. We have brothers and sisters in Christ cheering us on, pulling us along, helping us hold fast, and this is joy. Knowing that we don't labor in vain, knowing that the effort is worth it, even when it might not seem that way. There's joy in knowing that the finish line is in sight, even if it's just one mile too far. At that point, when we cross the finish, we reap eternity with Jesus. There's joy in running together, knowing that we're all going to finish this together and rejoice when we do. We have one purpose, together, loving, serving Jesus, because he loved us and served us too. And when we live like that, our lives reflect him to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, your word is both so, um, so motivational and so encouraging that, that we want to press on, and yet it's sometimes overwhelming too. But would you give us faith that, that you help us to know what those steps are of faith that we take and that we can do those things? Would you help us? Would you help us to not grow weary? Would you help us to look around? If, we're, if we aren't growing weary right now, would you help us just to look around and notice those that are and, and pull them along? Lord, I just pray that together we would finish the race well and um, that we would look forward to celebrating eternity with you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.